Mormon Discussion Podcast is made possible by the donations of our listeners and through our sponsor, Costa Rica Travel Pass. If you're looking for an out-of-this-world vacation, please consider visiting CostaRicaTravelPass.com. For the listeners who have donated to this program, my sincere thank yous and appreciation go out to you. I really enjoy doing this, and it's because of listeners like you that make this podcast able to continue and to be viable and to improve. We have several topics in the works, and we have several interviews tentatively scheduled, some of them with names that you will very easily recognize. I hope that more of you might consider being involved with the program, either by sending in suggestions of topics you'd like to see covered, perhaps you want to share your faith journey, which would be another way. And last of all, I hope that each of you might consider making a donation to the program so that we can continue to fulfill our obligations with our subscription and host site to update our software and to improve our equipment to keep this podcast improving and viable going forward. Now on to our episode of Mormon Discussion. discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to have you aboard today. You can email me at realmormon, R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N, at gmail.com. You can also find this podcast at its host site at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. You can also find the blog, themormondiscussion.blogspot.com, and you can find this podcast on iTunes as well. Glad to have you aboard. We are looking forward today to a really cool episode on the story about Martin Harris and Charles Anthon. We've learned this story multiple times in the church, and essentially while this may be a rehash of what we've been taught, let me share with you the basic outline of the story. As Martin Harris begins to assist Joseph Smith in translating the Book of Mormon, starting off with the first 116 pages or the Book of Lehi, which is eventually lost, but as they're translating, Joseph and Martin decide that it would be important for Martin to go to New York to verify that the translation is correct, that what Joseph is translating from the characters into into English is appropriate in a correct translation. So Joseph writes down on a piece of paper some of the characters. Martin is then sent to New York City, where he meets with a Dr. Samuel Mitchell and then a Dr. Charles Anthon. We know that Martin was perhaps skeptical as he headed off to New York, that he was worried that he was being duped by Joseph Smith. As Martin visits with Charles Anthon, he shares with him this, the Anthon transcript as we call it, and Charles Anthon looks at this paper with the characters on it, and according to Martin Harris and Joseph Smith, verifies that the translation from these characters into English is correct. And Charles Anthon then writes in a piece of paper, for Martin Harris, that this translation is correct and gives it to Martin. Charles then begins to ask Martin if he could bring him the plates and Dr. Anthon could complete the translation. Martin Harris informs Charles Anthon that this is not going to happen, that they're written on gold plates, that the translator Joseph Smith is a young, unlearned young man who has seen God in a vision and has been commanded Uh, to translate the plates. 
At this point, Dr. Anthon asks for the paperback and tears up the paper and then basically says, sorry, but I'm not, you know, going to be embarrassed here by some young man who's claiming to see visions. But Martin Harris ends up going back to Palmyra, New York, ready to put his farm up to take care of the cost of the Book of Mormon. And so even though we don't have the, the paper that testifies and Anthon says the translation is correct, we assume that Martin Harris' story is true because Martin puts his farm up as collateral uh, for Joseph Smith to help fund the church. Now, that's as much as we get. But there is another side of the story. Dr. Anthon was at least asked twice in his life that was recorded about what really transpired on that day. And Dr. Anthon denies completely that he ever gave Martin Harris a slip of paper saying that the translation was correct. He claims that the moment Martin Harris came in and explained the story to him, he knew it was a fraud. He knew that Martin was being duped, and he told Martin that he suggested to him that that he should get as far away from this whole production as possible that he was being taken for. There are a couple of problems with that story, though. In the two recorded dialogues with Charles Anthon, Dr. Anthon contradicts his story on several occasions. And so I'm going to include with this uh, podcast the original uh, transcript of the documents with Dr. Anthon where he was essentially interviewed and asked about this episode with Martin Harris. So you can see for yourself that Dr. Anthon, for whatever reason, changes his story on multiple occasions. But I thought we would take time here to read you both letters. Again, I'll stick them with the podcast so that you can look them over and read them, but I thought I would read both of them here. The first letter was written to Eber D. Howe, who wrote an anti-Mormon work called Mormonism Unveiled. And he wrote this first letter to Eber D. Howe on February 17th of 1834. He writes, Dear Sir, I received this morning your favor of the ninth instant, and lose no time in making a reply. The whole story about my having pronounced the Mormonite inscription to be reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics is perfectly false. Some years ago, a plain and apparently simple-hearted farmer called upon me with a note from Dr. Mitchell of our city, now deceased, requesting me to decipher, if possible, a paper, which the farmer would hand me, in which Dr. M. confessed he had been unable to understand. Upon examining the paper in question, I soon came to the conclusion that it was all a trick, perhaps a hoax. When I asked the person who brought it how he obtained the writing, he gave me as far as I can now recollect the following account a gold book consisting of a number of plates of gold, fastened together in the shape of a book by wires of the same metal that had been dug up in the northern part of the state of New York, along with the book an enormous pair of gold spectacles. These spectacles were so large that if a person attempted to look through them, his two eyes would have to be turned towards one of the glasses merely, the spectacles in question being altogether too large for the breadth of the human face. Whoever examined the plates through the spectacles was enabled not only to read them, but fully to understand their meaning. All this knowledge, however, was confined at that time to a young man who had the trunk containing the book and the spectacles in his sole possession. This young man was placed behind a curtain in the garret of a farmhouse, and being thus concealed from view, 
put on the spectacles occasionally, or rather, looked through one of the glasses, deciphered the characters in the book, and having committed some of them to paper, handed copies from behind the curtain to those who stood on the outside. Not a word, however, was said about the plates having been deciphered by the gift of God. Everything in this way was affected by the large pair of spectacles. The farmer added that he had been requested to contribute a sum of money towards the publication of the Golden Book, the contents which would, as he had been assured, produce an entire change in the world and save it from ruin. So urgent had been these solicitations that he intended selling his farm and handing over the amount received to those who wished to publish the plates. As a last precautionary step, however, he had resolved to come to New York and obtain the opinion of the learned about the meaning of the paper which he brought with him and which had been given him as part of the contents of the book, although no translation had been furnished at the time by the young man with spectacles. On hearing this odd story, I changed my opinion about the paper, and instead of viewing it any longer as a hoax upon the learned, I began to regard it as part of a scheme to cheat the farmer out of his money, and I communicated my suspicions to him, warning him to beware of rogues. He requested an opinion from me in writing which, of course, I declined giving. And he then took his leave, carrying the paper with him. This paper was, in fact, a singular scrawl. It consisted of all kinds of crooked characters disposed in columns, and had evidently been prepared by some person who had before him at the time a book containing various alphabets, Greek and Hebrew letters, crosses and flourishes, Roman letters inverted or placed sideways, were arranged in perpendicular columns and the whole ended in a ruled delineation of a circle, divided into various compartments, decked with various strange marks, and evidently copied after the Mexican calendar given by Humboldt, but copied in such a way as not to betray the source whence it was derived. I am thus particular as to the contents of the paper, inasmuch as I have frequently conversed with my friends of the subject since the Mormonite excitement began, and well remember the paper that contained anything else but Egyptian hieroglyphics. Some time, after the same farmer paid me a second visit, he brought with him a golden book in print, and offered it to me for sale. I declined purchasing. He then asked permission to leave the book with me for examination. I declined receiving it, although his manner was strangely urgent. I adverted once more to the roguery, which had been in my opinion practiced upon him, and asked him what had become of the gold plates. He informed me that they were in a trunk and with a large pair of spectacles. I advised him to go to the magistrate and have the trunk examined. He said the curse of God would come upon him should he do this. On my pressing him, however, to pursue the course which I had recommended, he told me that he would open the trunk if I would take the curse of God upon myself. I replied that I would do so with the greatest willingness, and would incur every risk of that nature, provided I could only extricate him from the grasp of rogues. He then left me. I have thus given you a full statement of all that I know respecting the origin of Mormonism, and must beg you as a personal favor to publish this letter immediately, should you find my name mentioned again by these wretched fanatics. Yours respectfully, Charles Anthem. A couple things of note here. Three things, actually. The one has nothing to do with trying to point out the contradictions in Charles Anthon's story, but actually to provide some similarities between his story and some of the other information that we learn. 
We hear a lot about Joseph Smith translating with a seer stone and not just using the Urim and Thummim. And there is a statement by William Smith, Joseph Smith's brother, that speaks about the Urim and Thummim, the spectacles that were included with the Book of Mormon when Moroni showed Joseph the box and where the items were buried. The spectacles, William said, were too awkward for Joseph and caused his eyes to hurt. And so that seems to be the only reason we have why Joseph switches from the spectacles to using the seer stone that he had used at one time when scrying. Charles Anthon, in his first letter here, and we'll also see he does the same in the second letter, makes mention that the spectacles were enormously big and awkward to use. And so it certainly is a, a second witness to what William Smith had said in regards to these spectacles. It also, for those who are critics of the church, we've got to explain where these spectacles come from and how Joseph gets them. Because it's not simply a fact that he is just telling people about the spectacles, and in reality he is only using the seer stone. In fact, it appears that several members of the church involved in the translation and members of Joseph's family had seen the spectacles. And Martin Harris here reaffirms to Charles Anthon that the spectacles, in fact, did exist. The other two things that need to be noted is that in this first letter, Charles Anthon makes two points. One, if you go back and listen to it, you'll see that he is certain that he is talking to Martin Harris. He even points out when referring to Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith as the young man. And so to me it becomes apparently clear that he is perfectly confident that the person he is speaking to is Martin Harris the farmer and that Joseph Smith is an entirely different person. The second point that needs to be made is that he makes mention that Martin Harris requested of him to write a note to him that he could take back to Joseph, reaffirming that the translation and the characters were authentic, that the characters were of ancient origin, and that the translation of those characters was an authentic translation. Charles Anthon is adamant here that, that he never wrote a letter, that he refused to do so. And I find that intriguing as we go into letter number two. The second letter was written by Dr. Charles Anthon on April 3rd, 1841, to a Reverend Coit. Here is what Dr. Anthon says. Reverend and dear sir, I have often heard that the Mormons claim me for an auxiliary, but as no one until the present time has even requested from me a statement in writing, I have not deemed it worthwhile to say anything publicly on the subject. What I do know of the sect relates to some of the early movements, and as the facts may amuse you, while they furnish a satisfactory answer to the charge of my being a Mormon proselyte, I proceed to lay them before you in detail. Many years ago, the precise date I do not now recollect, a plain-looking countryman called upon me with a letter from Dr. Samuel L. Mitchell requesting me to examine and give my opinion upon a certain paper marked with various characters which the doctor confessed he could not decipher, and which the bearer of the note was very anxious to have explained. A very brief examination of the paper convinced me that it was a mere hoax, and a very clumsy one, too. The characters were arranged in columns, like the Chinese mode of writing, and presented the most singular medley that I had ever beheld, Greek, Hebrew, and all sorts of letters, more or less distorted, either through unskillfulness or from actual design, were intermingled with sundry delineations of half-moons, stars, and other natural objects, and the whole ended in a rude representation of the Mexican zodiac. 
The conclusion was irresistible, that some cunning fellow had prepared the paper in question for the purpose of imposing upon the countryman who brought it, and I told the man so without any hesitation. He then proceeded to give me the history of the whole affair, which convinced me that he had fallen into the hands of some sharper, while it left me in great astonishment at his simplicity. The countryman told me that the gold book had been recently dug up in the western or northern part, I forget which, of our state, and he described this book as consisting of many gold plates, like leaves, secured by a gold wire passing through the edges of each, just as the leaves of a book are sewed together, and presented in this way the appearance of a volume. Each plate, according to him, was inscribed with unknown characters, and the paper which he handed me, a transcript of one of these pages. On my asking him by whom the copy was made, he gravely stated that along with the golden book there had been dug up a very large pair of spectacles, so large, in fact, that if a man were to hold them in front of his face, his two eyes would merely look through one of the glasses, and the remaining part of the spectacles would project a considerable distance sideways. These spectacles, it seems, a very valuable property of enabling anyone who looked through them, or rather through one of the lenses, not only to decipher the characters on the plates, but also to comprehend their exact meaning, and be able to translate them. My informant assured me that this curious property of the spectacles had been actually tested and found to be true. A young man, it seems, had been placed in the garret of a farmhouse, with a curtain before him, and having fastened the spectacles to his head, had read several pages in the golden book, and communicated their contents in writing to certain persons stationed on the outside of the curtain. He had also copied off one page of the book in the original character, which he had in like manner handed over to those who were separated from him by the curtain. In this copy was the paper which the countryman had brought with him. As the golden book was said to contain very great truths and most important revelations of a religious nature, a strong desire had been expressed by several persons in the countryman's neighborhood to have the whole work translated and published. A proposition had accordingly been made to my informant to sell his farm and apply the proceeds to the printing of the golden book, and the golden plates were to be left with him as security until he should be reimbursed by the sale of the work. To convince him more clearly that there was no risk whatever in the matter, and that the work was actually what it claimed to be, he was told to take the paper, which purported to be a copy of one of the pages of the book, to the city of New York, and submit it to the learned in that quarter, who would soon dispel all his doubts, and satisfy him as to the perfect safety of the investment. As Dr. Mitchell was our Magnus Apollo in those days, the man called first upon him, but the doctor, evidently suspecting some trick, declined giving any opinion about the matter, and sent the countryman down to the college to see in all probability what the learned pundits in that place would make of the affair. On my telling the bearer, of the paper that an attempt had been made to impose on him and defraud him of his property, he requested me to give him my opinion in writing about the paper which he had shown to me. I did so without hesitation, partly for the man's sake and partly to let the individual behind the curtain see that his trick was discovered. The import of what I wrote was, as far as I can now recollect, simply this, that the marks in the paper appeared to be merely an imitation of various alphabetical characters, and had, in my opinion, no meaning at all connected with them. The countryman then took his leave with many thanks and with the express declaration that he would in no shape part with his farm or embark in the speculation of the printing of the golden book. The matter rested here for a considerable time until one day when I had ceased entirely to think of the countryman and his paper, 
This same individual, to my great surprise, paid me a second visit. He now brought with him a duodecimo volume, which he said was a translation into English of the Golden Bible. He also stated that notwithstanding his original determination not to sell his farm, he had been induced, evidently, to do so, and apply the money to the publication of the book, and had received the golden plates as a security for payment. He begged my acceptance of the volume, assuring me that it would be found extremely interesting, and that it was already making great noise in the upper part of the state. Suspecting now that some serious trick was on foot, and that my plain-looking visitor might be, in fact, a very cunning fellow, I declined his present, and merely contented myself with a slight examination of the volume while he stood by. The more I declined receiving it, however, the more urgent the man became in offering the book, until at last I told him plainly that if he left the volume, as he said he intended to do, I should most assuredly throw it after him as he departed. I then asked him how he could be so foolish as to sell his farm and engage in this affair, and requested him to tell me if the plates were really of gold. In answer to the later inquiry, he said that he had never seen the plates themselves, which were carefully locked up in the trunk, but that he had the trunk in his possession. I advised him by all means to open the trunk and examine its contents, and if the plates proved to be of gold, which I did not believe at all, to sell them immediately. His reply was that if he opened the trunk, the curse of heaven would descend upon him and his children. However, added he, I will agree to open it, provided you take the curse of heaven upon yourself. For having advised me to the step, I told him I was perfectly willing to do so, and begged that he would hasten home and examine the trunk, for he would find that he had been cheated. He promised to do so as I recommended, and left me, taking his book with him. I have never seen him since." Such is a plain statement of all I know respecting the Mormons. My impression now is that the plain-looking countryman was none other than the Prophet Smith himself, who assumed an appearance of great simplicity in order to entrap me, if possible, into some recommendation of his book. That Prophet aided me by his inspiration in interpreting the volume is only one of the many amusing falsehoods which the Mormonites utter relative to my participation in their doctrines. Of these doctrines, I know nothing whatever, nor have I ever heard a single discourse from any of their preachers, although I have often felt a strong curiosity to become an auditor, since my friends tell me that they frequently name me in their sermons, and even go so far as to say that I am alluded to in the prophecies of Scripture. If what I have here written shall prove of any service in opening the eyes of some of their deluded followers to the real designs of those who profess to be the apostles of Mormonism, it will afford me satisfaction equal. I have no doubt, only by that which you yourself will feel on this subject. I remain, very respectfully and truly, your friend, Charles Anthon. So we see from the second letter several inconsistencies in what Charles Anthon says. First, in the second letter he makes mention that this is the first time he has been asked to have anything in writing about this experience that he would never been asked before. Yet we have the first letter. Now it's possible that over the years he simply forgot about Eber Howe visiting him and asking him about this experience. We also have him, by the end of the letter, assuming that the person who came to visit him was the Prophet Joseph Smith himself. But yet from the first letter, we see that he assumes that Joseph is a young man, which Joseph is, and he makes mention several times that this person doing the translating is a young man. This is important because Martin Harris was born in 1873. 
22 and a half years before the prophet Joseph Smith. If Charles Anthon is making it an absolute point in this first letter to point out that Joseph Smith was the uh, translator and he was a young man, and he says it several times, it becomes quite clear that the person he is talking to is not a young man and that he's trying to distinguish Joseph Smith from the man who showed up to visit him. In the second letter, by the end of the letter, he is assuming that the person who came to see him was indeed the prophet Joseph Smith himself. I see a conflict here. Another issue is that, again, in the first letter, Martin Harris asked Charles Anthon to write a letter. Charles Anthon utterly refuses. In the second letter, Charles Anthon makes mention that Martin Harris asked for a letter stating that Joseph was trying to dupe Martin and that the characters in translation were a fraud. And Charles Anthon replies that he goes ahead and writes this letter for Martin and tells him essentially, do not sell your farm, you're being duped and cheated. I think this is important too, because I think as time went by, Charles Anthon realized that his having written a note to Martin was something that was being attested to with the saints. And as time went on, he had to change his story to reflect that he actually did write a note. But rather than being honest and saying that the note was establishing the authenticity of the characters, instead he says that the note he wrote was that that Martin Harris was being frauded. The problem is, is that in the first letter, he makes it explicit that he refused to write any note whatsoever. So here we have it. Charles Anthon, in his two letters, contradicting himself on multiple occasions. And so if the critics want to point out that Joseph Smith's multiple accounts of the first vision have contradictions in them, which I don't see, then we absolutely have to throw Charles Anthon's testimony out the door and recognize that he more than likely did indeed write Martin Harris a letter confirming that the characters were ancient and that the translation, as best as he knew, was authentic. Thank you for joining me today in Mormon Discussion. God bless, and may the Lord warm your shoulders.